Hey, it's Bill Simmons. The Ringer is very excited about our new podcast that went through a lot of name iterations. What'd you decide on, Larry Wilmore? Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. What, what was the runner-up? <laughs> well, the Bill Simmons idea was, was it Lar Lar Land? <laughs> Lar Lar <laughs> Was that what it was? Lar Lar Land. Lar Lar. Where With do, the la- <laughs> you think people are going to subscribe to Lar Lar Land? <laughs> that joke was that it would be the worst idea for a podcast. No, it was horrible. You don't want people thinking worst when they're No, I wanted you to have a good one. This is a very good name. So what's going to be on this podcast? It's going to be me kind of uh, weighing in on some of the issues of the day with my audience. And then I'll be interviewing some really cool people during the podcast. Each week it'll be somebody different. Uh, Sometimes like culture, sometimes politics, sometimes sports, sometimes maybe an interest of mine, sometimes television. I've worked a lot in television. Yeah. We got Norman Lear coming up, Bernie Sanders, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So lots of great guests. Awesome. Welcome to the podcasting world, Larry Wilmore. Subscribe to Larry Wilmore's podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, and so is my eternal colleague and co-host, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Don't think I'm going to be eternal, but I appreciate your optimism. (laughs) And I know that you have thoughts on the baseball, as we've discussed. Home run rates are at record highs. Saw seemed to start very suddenly in the middle of 2015. Timing seems somewhat suspicious. I wrote something this week about baseball testing. I got access to MLB's internal report on the baseball, which suggests that nothing, its circumference, its weight, its bounciness, its seam height, its hardness has changed significantly since seasons when the home run rate was much lower. But you're still skeptical that the baseball hasn't changed. Yeah, I would I would first of all say everybody should go read your article because you finally got the data. They let you look at the books. This is like mm-hmm. the holy grail that we've been asking for for, for months right. and months and months, and it's nonsense. I don't believe it for a second. I think the conspiracy <laughs> goes all the way to the top. So I vote wow. that our editorial policy, that the balls are juiced, remain uh, as it stands, regardless of what Major League Baseball says. I'm less convinced that the ball is juiced than I was a week ago. I'm not completely swayed, but the evidence is somewhat compelling. Of course, you have to consider the source. This is coming from Major League Baseball. And yeah, what possible I, uh... <laughs> incentive would a multi-billion dollar company have to lie about the integrity of their product? I wonder. <laughs> I appreciate your commitment to the conspiracy. So we have a long conversation to get to here, so it's time to tee that up. We want to talk a bit about the business side of baseball and how analytics, or I suppose you could call it sabermetrics, has played a part in that area of the game because obviously teams have gotten more sophisticated in all ways, not just in the ways that they evaluate players, but also in the way that they evaluate fans essentially and have adjusted their ticketing policies and their marketing policies and their concessions policies. And all of that has an impact on the field because obviously the more money teams make on the business side, in theory, at least the more they could spend on players and payroll. So we are going to welcome in an expert on on that topic now. So we are joined now by Red Sox Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, Tim Zhu. Hi, Tim. Um, hi, how are you? Doing well. So you've been with the team since you started as an intern in 2003, and everyone knows what was going on on the field with the Red Sox in 2003. That was Theo's first full season. That was Bill James's first season with the team. That was the year that Moneyball came out. So that was a, a time when things were moving very quickly on the player valuation and baseball operations side. But I don't know much about the state of 
business analytics or the lack of business analytics at the time. So can you tell us a little bit about how the Red Sox ran things or to the extent that you know how the industry ran things on the business side at that time? Sure. Well, when I when I arrived in 2003, I, I started my first experience with the Red Sox was as an unpaid summer intern. And I was surprised at the time to see that there really was, as you mentioned, a lot going on on the baseball side, but very, very little going on on sort of the business side as it relates to analytics. I, my training had been as a consultant with Bain and Company, so we had often used data to help make more efficient business decisions. And, and when I got to the Red Sox, I, I realized that there was hardly any of it going on. So there was a lot of low-hanging fruit to work on. And one anecdote I remember seeing them get these fan letters and, and putting these fan letters in a giant filing cabinet. And I sort of said, what What do you guys do with those letters? And they said, oh, we just put them in that cabinet. And then what happens after that? And they said, well, they just sit there. And when it fills up, we put them off-site storage. And I said, well, do you create a database? Do you track you know, the topics? And they said, no, we don't do any of that. So one thing I did that first summer was help you know, just sort of categorize things. And again, sort of uh, using that analytics to understand what are the trends, what are the topics that people are writing about and then tracking them, um, et cetera. So that's one one example. But to, to answer your question, no, there wasn't a lot going on. We talk about how sort of the money ball stereotype of how people would go with their gut kind of on the baseball operations side, or it just wouldn't be very quantitatively driven. And maybe there were some beliefs that were passed down from tradition that didn't really have any kind of empirical backing. And how were decisions made on the business side? I mean, if you wanted to say, here's how much we're going to charge for a ticket in this area of the stadium, obviously things have changed as far as variable pricing and dynamic pricing, and we'll get into that. But just how was that made? Was it just, well, this is how much those tickets cost before, and we think they were selling okay? I mean, were there records of these sort of things that <laughs> people could look at at least? Yeah. Well, I don't want to paint the picture that we were in the stone age. I mean, we definitely mm -hmm. had um, a lot of executives that had a lot of experience and, and, and even in our ticket area, you know, it, it was clear they knew which tickets were selling sooner than others. So they knew which sections and which price scales were probably, you know, higher, more valuable than others, and maybe had a, had a price gap between the market price and the, and the, um, you know, the, the face value. But I think, so we, tr we relied a lot on executive instincts. I and mean, one example that I, another example I'll point to is one of the first things I did that summer was a an analysis of how much food and beverage we sold Saturday nights versus Saturday days. And if you mm -hmm. polled all of our senior management, everybody knew we sold more at night. You sell more beer, you sell more, it's sort of just instinctually obvious, but nobody knew by how much. So I went back and I looked at, you know, five, six, I think eight years of data, looked at every game and came back with a presentation that suggested that the, that the difference was, was more substantial than people thought. So I said, wow, that, I had no idea it was that much. So it was more about quantifying the, the things that, that often the executives had the right instincts for. And, and that was what was valuable to be able to say, well, I had no idea it was that much you know, that's surprising and helpful. And then it, you know, helps us think about scheduling in the future. So a lot of these analytics programs, not only on the business side, but in the baseball ops side, rely on data collection. And that's, you know, once that sort of thing is up and running, it tends to be pretty easy to keep going, but it's difficult to get started. So how, what was the process like of getting that data collection off the ground so you could start to make more informed decisions? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And I think one of the things that's most difficult, you know, you think about this sort of uh, maybe four or five step process of analyzing data, you have to collect the data. And, and one example I'll give is in our fan, you know, we have a CRM system and we have a customer data warehouse system where we're trying to sort of 
assign these different customer touch points to an individual. So maybe in the past, you know, Joe Smith might have bought a ticket from us. He might buy hot dogs and concessions from Aramark. He might buy merchandise online. He might follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and he might be in an email database. But in the past, all of those sort of data sources were in silos. They weren't connected to one central place. So it wasn't that helpful to sort of, you have all these touch points with Joe Smith, but you can't tie them all together and build this 360-degree customer profile. So we started this journey uh, from a customer standpoint many, many years ago. I actually remember you know, conversations about CRM and the investment in CRM happening seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, and it's taken time to create, to gather that data, to tie them all together to a central place. Yeah, cleansing and organizing the data is also challenging. So, you know, getting getting it sort of cleansed and, and organized. And then you can start to pull the insets, insights out of it. Um, so you're absolutely right that that has been the very first part is sort of get, getting access to all that data and getting it in the right place so that you can then draw the insights from it. Well, so I guess the, the analog to the baseball operations side would be something like the, the car mind system, or I guess now it's the beacon system that the Red Sox have been using for some time where, and every team has something like this, where, you know, you pull up a player and you have his scouting reports and you have his stats and you have his salary and you have all the information that you've collected about him. And you are kind of trying to do that for your customers, I guess, where you can pull up a customer and, and see all of that information about him or her. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, you know, again, I, I don't get involved on the baseball side. I've, I've been on the analytics side myself. I, I've worked with some of the, you know, Theo and Ben and, and now the team that we have now in the past, because I've been here for 15 years, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I think if we have a, a sales rep that's on the phone with someone that's looking to buy season tickets and he can understand that person's behavior. So maybe that person's past purchase history is that he only buys Sunday afternoon games and he can draw the, and we might have other information that suggests that that person has a family and, and likes to bring his kids he might focus that conversation towards a weekend plan. Whereas, you know, conversely, if he's on the phone with someone else who who's, has a history of buying, you know, more premium tickets for evening games, maybe that person is entertaining clients and is more of a business type person. And, and the conversation would be different on the phone with those two customers based on their past purchase history. Um, and so it, it helps us, you know, and frankly, it helps the customer because we're sort of taking them to a path quicker to a, to a product that they might be more interested in based on their past history. Did you ever want to get into baseball ops? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I get that question a lot. And, and the answer is actually no. Um, you know, I, I've been a baseball fan my whole life. I've been a huge Red Sox fan my whole life. But when I got in as an intern, I quick, I pretty quickly saw, and I re- used this phrase before, the low-hanging fruit. And I was really excited about sort of the impact that I felt like I could have on our business operation. We had some very smart people doing the baseball side. Frankly, I, you know, I, I'd never evaluated pet players. I'd never sort of had that background. And so I felt like my, my background was going to be much more valuable. And frankly, I'd have a, a better chance to, to do more on the business side. So I never, I never um, had a desire to make a switch. We have had people switch from biz, base, baseball to business or from baseball to business to baseball and, and successfully. But, but for me, I, I always enjoyed the business side. Yeah. And so is the fact that this is a job in baseball, how much of the appeal of the job is that? Or would you be, do you feel like you'd be equally happy doing this, I don't know, for a toy company or a cable company or something like that? Um, I definitely wouldn't be equally happy. I think it's, it's interesting because when I was at painting company and I, we worked on various different industries, I worked for a car company. I had a case for a credit card company. We had a case for an air conditioning company. I was doing a lot of the similar work, which was trying to you know gather data, use the data to make more effective and efficient business decisions. And I just didn't have a passion for it. And so I actually only was at Bain for a couple of years. The fact that I love the sport of baseball, I love the Red Sox as a brand and as a team, and I can sort of help 
shape there are decisions moving forward. That, that's what really gets me out of bed, uh, jumping out of bed in the morning. And so I don't think I would enjoy doing this for any other, any other industry or really any other team. Um, that, that's part of the fun, which is thinking about, I, I put my fan hat on and I say to myself, what would I you know, like? What would I be interested in? And, and then we're, we're all working together to try to you know, create those products for our fans. So obviously, customers, consumers are attached to baseball brands in a way that they are not products that they buy in other areas of their life. So you sent us a little presentation. And so there's a, a display of the ways that customers interact with, say, a, a food item that they buy. And, you know, there are a few ways they purchase it, they eat it. Oh, and there's then... one way I interact with food. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there are a few, you know, you can go to the website, you can like it on Facebook, you can follow it on Twitter, that sort of thing. But if you are running a baseball team, obviously there are dozens of ways in which people interact with that team and they feel an affiliation with that team and an emotional attachment to the team almost from birth in many cases. So how does that affect the way that you operate as opposed to a typical business or, or what does that kind of give you the leeway to do or how does that complicate your job as far as trying to make sure that you are reaching people in every way that they interact with a baseball team? Yeah, well, I think you're right. I mean, it creates just such a greater, deeper opportunity to really learn much more about our fans. And, and, and I think in, in this day and age, and obviously all of these data interactions, the fans are sort of, you know, opted in. They're, they're aware that, that they know when, the, when we buy their tickets. So sometimes it sort of seems a little bit big brother-ish, um, but, but really I think people embrace the idea of being able, allowing us to market to them more effectively. And so as you alluded to, you know, our fans interact with us in so many different ways. They buy tickets from us. They buy tickets on the secondary market. They get tickets given to them from someone else, and maybe they arrive at the game, and, and maybe they didn't buy it from us. Uh, but but you know they they buy concessions, they buy merchandise, they support our sponsors, they they donate to our foundation, and so each of these interactions we feel like is an opportunity for us to better understand what makes them tick as a Red Sox fan. And and that allows us to sort of serve them better. And, and other brands, as you said, you could be the most loyal fan of Starbucks, but mostly you're probably buying your coffee and maybe you have the app downloaded and you're maybe you're, you're in their loyalty program, but you're probably not doing a whole lot. So we have such an incredible opportunity to create these very, very deep customer profiles that then allow us to serve our fans different offers based on their preferences. And, and, and hopefully, you know, another example that I'll give before we started this journey with this customer um, data warehouse that I talked about and better understanding our fans, we would pretty much just kind of, you know, send out these mass emails to everybody. So, so one product that we have is our, is our fantasy camp. And, it, and it's a higher priced item. It's over $5,000. You, you, you put on a uniform, you play baseball, your coaches are Trot Nixon and Brian Daubach and Mike Timlin. And, and it's certainly a higher priced item. Um, and, and the guidelines are that you're, you know, they recommend that you're over 30 years old and they're open to male and female, but, but really males are primarily the ones that, that play. If we have 120 campers, we might have two or three females. Anyway, the point of the story is in the past, we would send an email to 700,000 people and a, you know, a 12 year old in China might get that email to asking her to join the fantasy camp and it just wasn't relevant. And now when we send those emails, we're much more targeted. We're much more, um, you know, we'll say, okay, well let's, let's take these people out because this day and age you get, people get so many emails 
that you don't want to bombard them with things that aren't relevant to their preferences. So that's something that we've focused a lot on, and it's been more effective in our marketing. Another thing that I imagine makes baseball different than other industries is brand loyalty. Like the Reds, you know, you brought up Starbucks, like even a loyal Starbucks customer might get coffee somewhere else if it's cheaper or more convenient or they like the Wi-Fi better. But that's just like being a sports fan is part of your identity in the way that shopping at another even other entertainment venues isn't. So how much of what you do to, I guess, to borrow a political metaphor is about courting undecideds versus turning out the base, like, you know, getting diehards to come out and go to more games versus recruiting people who might not be interested in baseball otherwise. Yeah. I mean, it's a a good question. And we've done a lot of uh, research on sort of, if you, if you think about even our fans on sort of a one to five scale and your five are your diehards and and your ones are your sort of casual or even non-fans, um, it is certainly easier and, and more important to our um, to, to sort of make sure that the fives stay fives and maybe you convert a four to a five or you don't have a five convert to a four. You know, it doesn't mean that we're not focused on acquiring new fans and, and particularly we're focused on acquiring younger new fans because I think baseball on the whole and Commissioner Manfred has talked about this it has a demographic challenge in that, you know, a lot of our more core fans or or older fans, you know, our average season ticket holder age is over 50 years old. And we want to make sure that the the younger fans are are playing the game of baseball and engaging and coming to Fenway Park. And so we do have some programs there. But, but, you know, it's absolutely critical to acquire new fans. But at the same time, to your point, the four or the fives are the ones that you're going to have a, a greater chance make an impact. And that's where our Red Sox Rewards loyalty program comes in. Our, we do have a Red Sox Rewards loyalty program, but it is actually offered exclusively to season ticket holders. And so, you know, by definition, pretty much all of our season ticket holders are fives. There's kind of a, on that scale. But we are able to offer them, you know, incredible access to things like throwing out a first pitch or sitting in John Henry's front row dugout seats or even taking a, a road trip with the team. Those are some of the prizes. So when these brand loyal fans are given the opportunity to earn points by coming to games and buying things at Fenway and then redeem those points for those types of experiences, you can watch an inning inside the Green Monster. That's that sort of relationship is, is strengthening their loyalty to the fans. One anecdote um, that is interesting, we have this fan of the month competition. So you, the most points earned per month, um, you get this great prize. And at, on June 30th of last year, the last day of the month, we had a fan walk into our EMC club and, and say that he wanted to spend $700 on his card because he wanted to make sure that he was fan of the month. And so he bought a couple of bottles of Dom Perignon and it put it, put him over the top and he won you know, the fan of the month for that month. So that was just a behavior that was, uh, you know, I don't think Starbucks is getting a lot of people um, walking into their shops uh, offering to spend $700 in one purchase. <laughs> And I imagine it's different for the Red Sox where you guys sell out almost every game, you know, you're on TV all the time versus a team that's struggling to, you know, even get 15,000 people in the building, like selling, selling tickets in and of itself is not, or even, you know, selling concessions once you're in the stadium is not as difficult to do with the Red Sox as it would be with other teams. Yeah, well, I think two things I would say to that. First of all, I think there's this misperception that, that you can't get your hands on Red Sox tickets. And, and while, we certainly are fortunate to have demand and a loyal, passionate fan base that supports us year in and year out, almost regardless of, of team performance. You know, we, we, we probably sell out about half our games. You know, the other half we have inventory. And, and, and so there's definitely the, an ability to come to Fenway. But I think some of the other markets that you referenced, maybe they might not have quite the history or the, or the sort of brand loyalty that we have. But every market has fives, you know, on that scale. Every market has loyal fans. Every market has, you know, these passionate sort of diehard, would do anything for their team type fans. And that's what makes sports so, so great. I mean, as a sports fan myself, 
my wife is not a sports fan and she often says, I don't get it. I just don't get why people go so crazy for sports. And I said, well, you, you just don't, she never really grew up as a fan, but, but I, we see it every day when we see our fans go going crazy for our teams, but other markets have, you know, different challenges, but, but it's the same opportunities to sort of, you know, create more engaging conversations with their most loyal fans. And, and again, sort of keep them or even move them up the ladder or keep them where they are in that, in that loyalty scale. So maybe the most visible public manifestation of this more data-driven operation on the business side is variable dynamic pricing, which as recently as five or six years ago, most teams were not using. Now, almost every team is. Can you explain what that is, first of all, for yeah. people who might not know, and, and then what sort of advantage teams derive from it? Yeah, well, it's a great question, and I think you're right. If you go back a few years, and even for us, we didn't have variable pricing as recently as 2013. The concept is that different games have different value. So clearly, if I asked you, would you rather go to opening day or would you rather go to game two, which is usually a Tuesday night in April against maybe the Rays or the Orioles? My guess is you'd probably rather go to opening day. <laughs> and if I asked you, would you rather go to a Yankee game on a Saturday in July or would you rather go to, you know, not disparaging any specific team, but a non-Yankee game in September on a Tuesday, you'd say, oh, I'd much rather go to that Yankee game in a summer in July. And so before vari- the concept of variable pricing is that, you know, different games should be priced differently. And it's no different than the way airlines price their tickets. It's no different than the way that, you know, a lot of industries sort of price things based on relative demand. Most sports teams, uh, if you go back five, six years ago, had basically what we call static pricing, you know, same price for opening day and the next day and all 81 games. And, and when we looked at the data, and, and we, we have very rich data from our secondary market, the MLB secondary market partnership, where we could see what fans were willing to pay for those games on the secondary market, because on the secondary market, the, the, the buyers and sellers are matched at sort of the you know, market clearing price uh, from an economic standpoint. We were seeing that opening day was really about five times as valuable as that second game of the season. Yet we were offering it at the exact exact same price. So, you know, very variable pricing was something we introduced after the 2013 season as a way to sort of allow us to align pricing more closely with its actual demand. But it wasn't all about raising pricing. In fact, it was just as much about when we introduced variable pricing, our average prices stayed the same. We had a price mm-hmm. freeze, but opening day was increased by approximately 20%, but that allowed us to decrease the prices for our, you know, lesser, you know, lesser demand, what we call sock saver games. And those are typically weeknights in April and May and September when, you know, it's tougher to get the kids out. Kids are still in school. Weather might not be as predictable, but we were able to reduce those ticket prices by 20%. So it allowed us, we created five different tiers, different teams have different. So some teams might have three tiers or seven tiers, but the concept is the same, which is, you know, depending on the, the, the opponent or the day of the week or the month, the, the price should be different than, and, and almost every team in baseball does it now. And frankly, almost every team in all of sports, even you even see some NFL teams these days doing it, even though they only have eight home games and they sell them all out. So it's been really successful for us. Again, it's, it's allowed us to sort of more properly price some of those higher demand Yankee games and opening day and those ones I alluded to. And then again, reduce prices across the board for 
these, you know, um, um, tier five games, which allows Fenway to be more accessible and affordable to families. Because one of the things we, we get criticized for, or we get comp comments from fans, and, and it's fair, is that it is, it is, you know, it's fairly expensive to bring the family out to Fenway Park. And we recognize that, that, that from a family to get out here, you want to you know, get your tickets, you want to get your hot dogs, you want to get your sodas and your parking, you know, it can be, a, it can be a pretty expensive experience. Uh, the introduction of variable pricing allowed us to reduce those tickets by 20, 25% on average for some of those games, uh, creating sort of a lower uh, price threshold. Um, so that, that's, that's variable pricing. The second part of it is dynamic pricing. And dynamic pricing, again, going back to the airline model, is let's say opening day starts at $100, but maybe – or maybe opening is a bad example, but maybe a game in September might start at a certain price. And if the team is in the race and doing really well, demand for that game is going to go up because people are going to want to see a playoff contending team. And so the price might go up. But if a team is out of the race in September, the price might go down. So dynamic pricing, the teams can, can change the prices daily, even hourly. And we have dynamic pricing on our Green Monster, which, which is a very popular seating area at Fenway Park. And again, similarly, that allows us to, to, to increase prices for those high demand games, but again, lower prices uh, for the lower demand games. And it's more aligned with, with what the market is saying. So mm -hmm. it's all about sort of price efficiency and, and making sure that the prices are aligned with what the fans are willing to pay. And so you were able to use data from the secondary market and, and resellers, right? Because if you just had static pricing in the past, it would have been hard to tell what people would pay for those seats short of going and standing outside the stadium and seeing what you could buy them for or sell them for, I guess. But right. you were able to use StubHub data to see what people were actually paying and then adjust your prices accordingly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because, you know, if you can imagine that, that maybe a, a fan, maybe a season ticket holder can't go to opening day, so he sells his tickets a week before the game and, and a buyer is willing to pay you know, maybe twice as much as what the season ticket holder paid to acquire the ticket. So then that particular transaction, the, the data is suggesting that that ticket in that location was, was valued at twice what it was acquired for. And that secondary market data is very, very valuable in, in sort of helping us determine the true, the true prices. And also, you know, so we, we then did a very extensive analysis to determine, you know, what are the factors that really, really impact uh, people's willingness or, or interest in coming to a game? Is it opponent? Is it day of the week? Is it, is it month, et cetera? And, and, you know, team performance, the starting pitcher, all these different variables that you try to isolate and determine what's the correlation. And it turns out that everything is certainly a factor, but the predominant factors um, outside of opening day, which is such a unique uh, sort of celebration in baseball and, and you know, really premium opponents. So for example, our Red Sox Yankee rivalry is still very high, but even when the Cubs were in town recently, the Cubs came to Fenway as first time they'd been here, I think in three or six years. And so that was also a very sort of popular opponent uh, matchup, but really it's, it's much more about, as I alluded to earlier, day of the week and, uh, and, and summer versus non-summer, you know, families um, are much more likely to bring their 10 year old to a game on a, on a Saturday in July, knowing that they can maybe stay up a little later, you know, they can not have to get up for school the next day. And, and the weather is again, more dependable. And, and so those, that, those dates, if you look at our calendar and if you look at our variable pricing, you're going to see a lot of Saturdays and Fridays and Sundays in June and July and August as the higher 
tier games. And you're going to see, you know, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Mondays in April, May, and September as the lower tier. And that, and that was sort of what the data suggested was the, 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 the demand for the relative demand for those games. So how do you get that data from the resellers? Because I imagine there would be a pretty powerful disincentive for them to do anything that would help you create a dynamic pricing model. Yeah, well, uh, StubHub has been a great partner of the league for many years. So, so StubHub has been um, a, a very great league-wide partner. They're the official ticket marketplace for, for all of Major League Baseball. And so as part of that partnership, they were willing to share some of that data, just to, which, which allowed us to, to help, again, uh, form some of these pricing decisions. So it was part of it, a league-wide partnership with their partnership with Major League Baseball at the league level. All right, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we'll be right back with more from Tim Zhu. Today's show is brought to you by the new Spotify original podcast, Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty. Hosted by co-founder of Loudspeakers Network, Reggie Osei, a.k.a. Combat Jack, Mogul tells the story of Chris Lighty, the music executive who changed hip-hop and shaped the careers of some of its most beloved artists. From LL Cool J to Missy Elliott to 50 Cent, Chris Lighty had one of the most illustrious careers in music and rose to the pinnacle of musical success before an untimely end. The story is broader than just music, though. It's the story of the American dream. Produced by Gimlet Media and Loudspeakers Network. New episodes of the Spotify original podcast Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty are being released every week right now. So again, listen to and follow Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty every week right now on Spotify. All right. What role does analytics play in promotions and giveaways? I remember reading Bill Veck's great book, Veck is in Rec, the Hall of Fame owner. And he was talking about how even back then in the 50s or earlier, you know, fireworks nights were the big draw and teams knew that if you had fireworks, people would come out, even if your team was lousy and there wasn't much other reason to come to the park. I don't know if fireworks work as well in 2017 as they did then, but how do you gather data on how much, say, a, a bobblehead giveaway helps? And is it more about selling tickets or about getting people in the ballpark earlier because there are only so many giveaways and they know they have to show up early? And then maybe if they mm -hmm. show up early, they have to buy more food and, and drinks while they're there. Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, I think, you know, we actually were fortunate that from May of 2003 through the second game of the 2013 season, we had a 750 plus game sellout streak and demand for Red Sox tickets was you know off the charts and, and we actually didn't we didn't have to offer promotions in order to attract people to buy tickets many other teams do as you said many different promotions whether it's bobbleheads or, or fireworks or t-shirt giveaways or whatnot after the sellout streak ended we realized that that we were going to have more ticket inventory as i alluded to we maybe sell out about half of our games and so we studied what you know we, we actually tested uh, the promotions i think we did five promotions the first year I think it was 2014. And as we looked at the data, it did suggest that not only were people, that those games were sort of selling more tickets than we would have expected for comparable, you know, day of the week and month and opponent mixes, um, that, that to your point, there it was attracting some people to come a little earlier. Um, and, and we also did a bunch of surveys. So we would ask people, you know, what role did the bobblehead play in your, um, purchase decision. And then, then the answers were, you know, it was the primary reason. Um, it was one of many reasons. It was not a reason at all. We asked them if we didn't have the bobblehead, would you have purchased for this ticket? Yes or no. And then the challenge is, okay, well, would they have bought for another game? You know, did they substitute the, a different game for the bobblehead game? And so we try to do our best to, to sort of, um, 
you know, see the impact. But but by and large, we're very, you know, we, we, we've had a lot of fun with the promotions over the last few years. I think we're up to I don't know, 14 or 15 different uh, games where we do promotions and we have different, our marketing team has a lot of fun. It, you know, it's not just about selling tickets. I mean, I think we like the idea that fans are able to collect some of these, um, you know, they, they have collections of these things and, and it also helps build fan affinity. You know, if you have a, if your kid has a Mookie Betts bobblehead sitting on his, uh, you know, dresser um, mm-hmm. in his room, that that's not a bad thing for building their Red Sox brand affinity. So it's not only about the dollars, but I do think that we do try to um, determine not only should we do these, but then the next question is, well, which games? And one of the interesting things that some teams I think have done over many years is, you know, intuitively you say, well, let's just put it on our worst game, you know, our Monday night in April and let's see who comes. But it turns out a lot of teams have actually transitioned to, no, 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 let's put it on a Saturday because we want the game that has the most chance to sell more tickets. And so if they have a Saturday that isn't going to sell out, but maybe the bobblehead put someone over the top, right, of their purchase decision. And maybe you can. There's been a lot of evolution over the past few years around sort of the strategy around which games are the most appealing to put a bobblehead on. It's not necessarily your worst game or your best game, but it's the games that you think you have the most chance to, to, to impact people's decisions. And there, there's a lot mm-hmm. of work across the industry goes goes into that. Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned marketing, and I know that's another area where things have changed. So you've moved from sort of a, a more nebulous marketing campaign, I guess, where it's harder to assess the impact to some methods of advertising that are easier to quantify and say, well, we sent out this mailer and this many people started checking our website. So I guess, how has your marketing strategy evolved and how much does that matter? Because as we were talking about earlier, you do have this brand loyalty and affiliation with the team and some people are going to go to the same number of Red Sox games or watch the Red Sox every night, whether or not you remind them to. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to your point about the evolution of our marketing strategies, if you think about all the ways that any company can sort of market their product, you know, there's TV, there's print advertising, I mean, there's outdoor billboards, there's online marketing, you know, like to your point, there's, there's uh, direct mail. And we feel like it's all important. I mean, you know, we, 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 our marketing team and our creative team does a great job of, of creating these great uh, 30 second spots, these TV spots that are more about sort of brand association. They don't even have a call to action. And it's not even, not even telling you to go to a certain website. Those are important because they, they create, you know, sort of an affinity for the Red Sox and people see that and think, oh, that's a nice ad. And, but it's harder to sort of determine an, an ROI or, you know, okay, well, we, we spent this money on this TV ad and how many tickets did we sell? So over time we have shifted towards, we haven't gotten rid of TV and print and all that, but we have shifted towards, you know, maybe a little less of that type of, of marketing and a little more towards, you know, the things that a lot of companies are doing these days with the search engine marketing and online that, that you can tie back to, okay, this person saw this, you know, ad on Facebook and they clicked on it and then they ultimately bought a couple of tickets to a game. And that, you know, it helps us sort of determine the effectiveness of the different campaigns. And we can also, frankly, do some A-B testing on different types of messaging. So maybe we have the same ad in the sense that it's both served up on Facebook or, or maybe it's served up on a, on a banner ad, um, but maybe it's a different image and a different you know, sort of text. And we can, can say, well, which one of these performed better? 
and we could do some A-B testing to suggest that, you know, this particular message and this particular imagery perform better for whatever reason, and therefore we, we might want to use that more often. So, you know, any, I guess I said earlier, any time we can sort of get our hands on information to help us be more efficient with our marketing and, and more effective. We try to do that. The one direct mail campaign that we that we did uh, recently was very successful. It's funny because you don't think about direct mail in this day and in this digital age. Um, but but what we've realized is, as I alluded to earlier, people get so much email these days that a lot of times the emails we send are just you know they're they're not even opened. They're just sort of. And so one of our sales reps had an idea. Hey, why don't we? People don't people like to get mail. Why don't we send them? A postcard, and so we pulled together some lists based on previous purchasers and, and their history, and and you know the geography and, and sort of radius from Fenway, and we sent out you know about seventy thousand pieces of mail, and 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 were able to to sell some new season tickets as a result of that, um, because of it was sort of again that targeted um, targeted message to to purchasers that were had come to many games before, and and uh, have and and so that was an effective way to again measure uh, sort of the ROI on that on that investment. Mm-hmm. And is there any analytics application of concessions? It seems like over the last several years, there's been the trend toward the eye-catching, news-making sort of concession item, where it's just some outlandish dish that will probably kill you if you eat it regularly. And the bigger it is, and the more calories it is, the more coverage it gets. And I don't know how that translates necessarily to attendance or concession sales. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you have some really interesting item, people will come try it at least once. But how has that changed as a result of gathering better data, whether it's making certain food items available or or making sure that you have these items distributed around the ballpark in a certain way? Yeah, well, our our partner, Airmark, has been a great partner of ours, and and they're also invested in this area. And, and, And so, you know, a couple of examples, you know, one is they certainly track the volume that they're selling at different stands at different times and allows them to predict you know, sort of the amount of food to prepare, but also staffing levels at different places. Um, one thing that's sort of up and that's coming up these days is, is line management. And we've, we've explored different software that actually you can install cameras that allows the cameras to sort of estimate the, the you know, wait times. And we don't have this ready mm. yet. It's like concession stat cast. Yeah, we're kind of exploring if you could install cameras that could, you know, focus on the lines and then the software could estimate wait times and then you could serve those wait times up into, you know, maybe through the ballpark app. Now, I do think that some stadiums are doing this. I think that maybe Levi Stadium, uh, the 49ers might have sort of estimated wait times. But again, it's all about trying to improve the fan experience. So if you, you know, want to go get your beer and you pull up your app and it says and you sort of type in beer, and uh, and it gives you it says you know your fastest wait time is kind of like ways you know is to go to this stand and it gives you a little map to walk over there. Those are the types of things that we're sort of exploring um, because it, ultimately your time at Fenway Park is so precious, right? You don't want to be waiting in line for your beer, you you or your hot dog. We want you to be watching the game and enjoying it with your family and friends. So I think we're trying to sort of explore how do we do our best to, you know, shorten that wait time? You're always going to have crowds. You're, there's only so many stands you can fit in the Fenway Park and there's only in this, you know, 37, 38,000 people. But we are exploring ways to make that more efficient. And there's a lot of other things going on in the space, like ordering from your phone and, and pickup windows, et cetera. Fenway Park is a little small. So for some of these new facilities, it's a little harder to, to, to do some of that because you still have to prepare the food and have it out on the pickup areas. But, you know, we, we've seen a lot of technology where, um, concessionaires are working on. There's even these lockers. It's an interesting concept where you order the food, 
you, you know, there's all these different lockers. The food is prepared behind the locker. It's, it's put in the locker, then you punch in a code and the locker door opens and there's your food, you know, sort of that type of concept. Again, probably not, uh, wouldn't work at Fenway given space constraints, but but interesting things that we're looking to enhance the fan experience and, and reduce those wait times. And that brings up something I wanted to ask you about is like, there's a lot of innovative ways to try to, you know, improve the fan experience and, and all that. But also if, if I know I'm not going to miss an entire inning going to get a beer, I might be more likely to go to a concession stand and spend 10 bucks or however much of a, beer costs at Fenway. And that obviously makes more money for the team. So saying the goal is to make as much money is sort of a crude way of putting it. But like, is there a more specific way or a more specific set of goals that you would say you have? Well, I mean, I, our goal is to make sure that every fan has the best possible experience at Fenway Park, you know, and that starts with, we actually have done some other research around the entire customer journey and all the touch points. So you starts with acquiring your ticket, whether you bought it from us or somebody else, you then make your way to Fenway and whether that's on the T or on a car, you then park your car, you then walk in through the turnstiles, you then find your seats, you know, an usher helps you, you that you then, you know, at some point get up and hopefully buy a hot dog or, or something from the concession stand. Maybe you go buy merchandise, maybe you visit our kids club. And so that customer journey has so many different, uh, you know, touch points and, and we're very focused on making each of those touch points as enjoyable and as frictionless as possible. You know, so we, we've introduced, uh, you know, we have a mobile only fast lane for ticketing these days. We actually launched it this year. So mobile ticketing is an area we haven't talked about a whole lot, but, but teams are, you know, focused on mobile ticketing because it's more convenient for the fans. Um, and, and so now if you come to Fenway and you have your ticket on your mobile phone, you don't have to wait in, in line. The lines are much shorter at these sort of mobile only fast lanes that each gate has. And so that's a frictionless, less experience there. Um, and so it's a waste of food and beverage. It's less about, I mean, I definitely don't want to paint it as we want to squeeze every penny out of everybody's wallet. You know, we want to make sure they have a great experience that, that the food and, and beverages that they're served are high quality, that they're waiting in as short of lines as possible and shortest waits as possible. And that sort of prices are, are competitive and, and, and in line with, with other peers in our market. And we do a lot of price studies on that regard as well. We look at the garden and the Patriots, et cetera. Um, so it's really all about the, the best possible fan experience that we can create. And if technology helps us improve that experience, if the ballpark app allows us, we have a new thing we launched this year as well is, is a live chat. So you can hop on your phone and the ballpark app at Fenway and you can hop on and, and chat and ask questions. And, and, um, and, you know, we have a rep on the other side that's answering those questions. We're actually going to be launching later this year, artificial intelligence that, you know, if you type in craft beer, it'll, it'll automatically, there's some canned responses that will automatically reply and tell you, recognize what you typed, you know, put it in a category and, and, and reply with the information that's best suited to you. So again, helping people hopefully uh, maximize their enjoyment when they're at Fenway Park. Do you think there's a correlation or a connection between implementing these strategies and being able to spend more on the team? Because as you mentioned, you know, if this improves the fan experience, that's a positive. If it leads to more revenue and that leads to the owner being enriched or the franchise value going up, that's maybe not something that 
fins are all that invested in. But if, say, well, we increased our revenue X percent because we have variable dynamic pricing, and now when it comes to setting the budget for the player payroll, we can increase that. We can sign this free agent or sign this young player to an extension because we are maximizing our revenue on the business side. That's something that fans could get behind, presumably. So, do you think there's any connection there? Is there a way to point to business analytics as leading to a greater investment in the baseball team on the field? Yeah, it's a great question. It's funny. I actually vividly remember my first interview with Larry Lucchino prior to getting my internship the summer of 2003. So this was, you know, again, I wasn't, I was not hired yet. And I had a diagram and there were three, what I called the three pillars of success of a baseball team. And the first was and foremost was winning championships. I mean, that, that is everybody's ultimate goal. And, and the ownership goal, the fan goal, the, the, the baseball ops, the front office, the players, management, et cetera. But you're right that, that generally a winning successful team will, there was sort of, there was an arrow pointing to the next one, which was, was, will generally breed fan satisfaction and fan enjoyment and fan happiness, which is the second one. So keeping fans happy is the second pillar of success. And that had an arrow pointing to the third one, which was, you know, generally happier uh, fans that are, that have a competitive team to root for are more likely to purchase more tickets. You, you, you would see there's certainly correlation between team performance and team attendance. And, and if you look over time, you know, uh, attendance is often always higher when teams are high. So then that does create more revenue opportunities, which then allow for greater payroll flexibility and the arrow pointed to the first one. And it was kind of a circle mm-hmm. and that was the drawing. And so I think that to answer your question, you know, there's certainly a relationship between the two. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, if you think about the larger market teams that have, you know, higher opportunities to create revenues, whether it's through TV contracts or, or tickets or other sources, in general, you see those teams like the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Cubs um, with higher payrolls. And, and, you know, there's a relationship. I wouldn't say that it's a direct correlation, although, you know, we have said, um, you know, publicly that, that we invest all the money that we generate is reinvested in either the team, which is which is uh, you know, uh, player payroll and, and scouting and development and those types of expenses. Um, renovations of Fenway Park, we've spent roughly $300 million of private money improving the fan experience of Fenway Park. And so, you know, we're not lining our, our owners' pockets with, with this money. We're, we're, we're reinvesting it in making sure that we put a competitive team on the field and that we create that family experience. But there's certainly a relationship, and I think, you know, a lot of times that fans do understand, hopefully, and maybe not in all markets, but certainly in our market, that if if they see a price increase and then that they're not generally price increases are not uh, met with, with happiness from fans, but a modest mm-hmm. price increase, they know that our owners are going to reinvest it. And we've had, you know, you guys know the numbers, probably the, I think the second highest average payroll over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, uh, we continue to be at the top end of, of threshold in terms of player payroll. Um, so we're, we certainly have invested um, all that money back into into the team on the field. And one way, I guess, that that has manifested itself is in upgrades to Fenway, and that's one way in which the Red Sox are unique or close to unique, in that a lot of teams are 
either in the process of trying to get a new ballpark or they just recently did get a new ballpark, whereas the Red Sox have this asset in Fenway Park, which is beautiful and historic and people have been going there their whole lives. And you've found ways to cram more seats in the Fenway or or more attractive seats or upgrade it in certain ways while retaining the bones of the century plus old ballpark. So how has data played a role in that, if at all? Are you able to sort of model the effects of if we could cram in a few more seats here or there, or if we have these premium seats that people will come to on the top of the Green Monster, then we can keep this frame of the old ballpark, but still compete with teams that have brand new ballparks that might have higher capacities or more amenities in certain ways? Yeah, I mean, I would answer that in a couple ways. First of all, um, Larry Lucchino and, and Janet Marie Smith and, and others that have played a role in in all the renovations that have that have occurred here deserve a ton of credit for sort of the artistic creativity and really vision to to turn Fenway Park into um, into what it is today, which is which is incredibly historic, charming ballpark with with more modern amenities that have been added over the last few years. Um, this ownership group, I think, was the only ownership group when the when the team was put up for sale back in 2002 that was committed to keeping Fenway Park. And John Henry and Tom Werner and others were very um, passionate about keeping it. And I think it was as a Red Sox fan myself, certainly the right decision. And I think as it relates to to data and sort of the use of data and some of that decisions, you know, ironically, I would say the decision to stay was probably not, there wasn't a lot of, well, I, I, I got here in 2003, so I wasn't involved in all of this, but I don't think there was a ton of survey and research on it. I think it was just gut feel. It's just that, you know, hey, Fenway Park is this historic icon and we've got to do everything possible to save it. And, and so I don't know if there was a whole lot of data behind that particular decision, but once we decided what to do, we certainly looked at um, various trends. You know, one thing that was interesting is if you looked at new ballparks, approximately 20% of the seating inventory was considered premium. So whether it was a suite or a club or, or, or something like that. And Fenway Park had a lot less premium seating. The, the ratio at the time was you know below five or 6%. And so a lot of the things that we've added um, have been more premium seating areas that, that again, just to, just to, so the EMC club, the State Street Pavilion, we've expanded our suites. And, and that has allowed us to sort of add seats in a market that, that was maybe there was less uh, inventory and again, going back to sort of being able to fuel payroll flexibility, you know, allowed us to, um, to, to to create more payroll flexibility. So there was certainly some analysis that I was involved in around, you know, what's the highest and best use for some of these areas. But from a creative and architectural uh, standpoint, Janet Marie Smith, who, who currently works for the Dodgers and did, did great work here at, at Fenway, and Larry Lucchino, the former president, who, who really was the champion of, of all of these renovations, really deserve all the credit for the for, for the work that was done. And I think Fenway has the best of both worlds because it has you know, the, the historic charm of a hundred and I guess what, five year old ballpark now with more modern seating areas that, that and more comforts um, than it had prior. This is something that comes up with every sort of personalized analytics, whether it's marking data or whether it's biometric athlete data. You know, what do you see from your end when you're looking at a, a customer profile? Is it, you know, you see a 37 year old woman from Rhode Island who goes to games on Thursdays. You're like, do you see a name or do you not even see anything and everything just is just sort of automated just because customer privacy become such a big issue in the in the past yeah. few years? Well, it certainly, it certainly depends. A lot of times we're seeing sort of aggregate data. So we're not seeing the individual 
customer data. We're seeing the aggregate data that would suggest of, you know, if you, you of this customer base, um, you know, X percent is, is lives in this area and X percent might be in this demographic and X percent might be, you know, in this income level. So it's an aggregated level. If the customer, um, again, you know, from our season ticket holders, for example, if they have provided us information through a survey that has been very clear that the information is being provided to us, you know, so if they uh, self self identify themselves as certain things, then we may have a more specific, unique customer profile to an individual. But for the most part, to be honest, those are more more rare that, that that you have that sort of individualized. It has to be obviously volunteered. The information is volunteered from the customer, and they are and they are aware that we're trying to use that information to serve them better. You know, so it might be through a survey or whatnot. Um, so some of the, like I said, the sort of quote of big brother stuff, you know, there, there are very, very strict privacy laws around some of that stuff. So we're very careful and cognizant that we're not trying to, you know, I don't want people to hear this podcast and think that the Red Sox are, are sort of watching them, <laughs> you know, behind the scenes. It, it's all sort of opted in voluntary stuff. But if I, what I will say, if someone's listening is if you, if you are a passionate Red Sox fan and you want us to be able to sort of create offers for you that we think are more relevant to your likes and dislikes then you know if you have us if you get sent a survey and you click on it and, and you fill it out then that's you know helpful in, in providing us with that information so that we can then hopefully not you know again if you're that 12 year old in china you're not going to get the fantasy camp email that i alluded to earlier but maybe you're going to get an invite to our international kid nation program or something that's more you know more specific to your your desires but but um again just want to be clear that that we're not uh we're not out there behind the scenes gathering all this information unbeknownst to people. <laughs> and my last question is about information sharing between teams on the business side, because in baseball operations, there isn't a whole lot of discussion about the ways that teams operate. You don't have a baseball operations analyst from one team telling another team's baseball operations analyst how to do stat cast defensive analysis or something. That information is not really shared. Sometimes one team's analyst will be hired by another team and information will circulate that way. But in that case, you're kind of competing for the same resources, the same players. And so you can understand why you wouldn't share intelligence, but with marketing or with ticketing or with concessions, it's not like if a fan doesn't buy a hot dog at Fenway, he's going to be buying a hot dog at Camden Yards or something. You're not necessarily competing for the same customers and the same dollars. So is there more collegiality on the business side between teams? Do you know what other teams are doing and, and do you share resources in that way? There's no question. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, our baseball ops department is trying to gain an edge on other teams. And so they're going to be much less likely to want to share any insights that they might have uh, you know, proprietarily developed. Um, whereas for us, we are openly sharing all of our information. And in fact, Major League Baseball has done a great job of encouraging that sharing. Last year, one of the Major League Baseball folks suggested that we host an analytics meeting prior to the Sloan conference at MIT, because a lot of people send people to Sloan anyway, 
And mm-hmm. so we ended up hosting a, an all day session where all, I think 20 of the 30 clubs sent someone, everybody's new different teams shared uh, case studies or best practices. It was a great all day thing. We did it again this year. Uh, I think 23 teams sent people this year and it was a com- exclusively focused on business analytics and all the topics that we've covered on this, on this conversation. And, you know, it was a great day. We, we, we shared ideas. People spoke incredibly openly. We shared some drinks a- afterwards and continued the conversation. Um, and so teams, I think, are very, very open to sort of share the things that they're doing on the business side. And I, and I frankly love that because it's great to get to know um, other teams and, and learn from them. And, and we always make jokes that, you know, the best ideas are often stolen from other people. Stolen meaning, you know, shared. And and, and, uh, and, and so when a team says, hey, this is one thing we did. Um, I think you mentioned Alex King from the Indians earlier. Um, who, we, we did a customer segmentation study that was really mirrored after a study that the Indians did similarly. So answer, anyway, long-winded answer to your question that there's absolutely great collaboration amongst the teams in this space. And it makes my job even more fun be able to share in that with everybody else. All right. So this is the last question. Uh, in some of the information you sent to us, you mentioned that when you were at MIT, you won a robotics design competition. And we have a rule on this podcast where if a guest has robotics expertise, we ask him about it. So what was the <laughs> the nature of the competition? You know, what happened? Yeah. With the- well, so at MIT, there's a a long-standing class. It used to be called two. Se- all of the classes at MIT are numbers. So it shows what MIT is like. But so I was a mechanical engineer at MIT, and the class used to be called two, 270, and now it's called 2007. But basically, the premise was all sophomore mechanical engineering students are enrolled in the same class, which is a you get the same exact kit of parts, various materials, engines, pistons, whatnot. And there's a certain challenge that everybody has, and then there's a round robin competition where robots go head to head, you know, it's probably 150 people in the class. And so it takes two days to go all the way through. And my year, the challenge was called pass the puck. So you had each of your robots started on either side of a table and uh, it's kind of a sporting type thing anyway. And there were hockey pucks and and street hockey balls on either side. And you were trying to get as much stuff from your side over to the other opponent's side. And, And each thing had a point value. Pucks were three points and balls were one point and your machine was 10 points. And so anyway, I was fortunate enough um, to actually win the competition. I had, a, I had created a robot that sort of uh, was scaled over this wall that was in the middle, dividing the table in half. And, and then I was able to sort of combat the robot on the other side of the table. And I was fortunate enough to, to, to go all the way to the end and actually won the competition. And the even more fun was, um, was also then uh, part of a team that went uh, over to Japan to compete in an international robotics design competition that summer with five other countries. I think it was Japan, Korea, France, Germany, and Brazil, and the U.S. Each sent six uh, students uh, over there to compete uh, over, over a three-week period to build another robot, and I was part of that as well. So it was a, it was a lot of fun. That's sort of my uh, feather in my cap for my MIT career. Um, and, and it was a uh, very, very fond memories of those days. We'll have you back on when we build our own giant death robot for the ring around MLB <laughs> show and yeah. pick your brain a little bit. There's gotta be a way to combine robots and baseball, right? If you're pro robot ump. Well, this is the, the solution to Tommy John surgery is just give every pitcher a robotic arm. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Google or somebody is, 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 
either has or or is going to or is in the process of building a, a robot to throw out a first pitch. I think I did see that somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's an old video game from the early 90s called Super Baseball 2020, where the players are robots, and we are very close to 2020. So yeah. I hope that this is a, an area where you will be leading the charge. You you can get a sense. I I embraced my the, the nerd side of my background. Um, with that with that little side story but it was a lot of fun and it was a great opportunity all right well we have been talking to tim Zhu of the red sox we really appreciate your time and insight thanks tim all right thanks guys i appreciate it all right so that will do it for this week we will be back on monday nice talking to you michael see ya Today's show has been brought to you by the new Spotify original podcast, Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty. Produced by Gimlet Media and Loudspeakers Network, Mogul details the illustrious hip-hop career of Chris Lighty and his rise to success before an unfortunate and untimely end. The story is broader than just music. It's the story of the American dream. So follow and listen to Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty every week right now on Spotify.